The Scuttlebutt is proud to welcome Millerstown Pick Apart, a self-service salvage yard where you can get parts you need for your car, truck, or van at very attractive prices because you do the work. Bring your own wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, sockets, jacks, drills, or whatever you need, except for torches, to wrestle out the parts you need for the vehicles in the yard. Millerstown Pick Apart was created 17 years ago to provide reasonably priced solutions for auto parts needs. Millerstown is the perfect fit for those seeking discount auto parts to repair their own vehicles. Millerstown has a huge inventory of cars, which they purchase from individuals, towing companies, and auctions, and from its sister auto salvage recycling operation. For hours, directions, inventory, parts availability, and pricing, you can go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D, pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. That's pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. Well, I think there will be some resistance as of any change. It's change management, and I think what the uh, the key to it is, is keeping the end state in mind, and that is to build a better warfighting force for our nation's needs. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. I am not a veteran, but I'm passionate about veteran stories. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect educate, heal, and inspire. If you haven't yet already, please like, share, subscribe, or ring the bell on YouTube for the scuttlebutt. That way you know whenever we release new episodes every Monday. Also, please drop me a line at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear your thoughts on these episodes. And leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always nice to have a good review or, you know, a constructively critical review. Um, But we're always interested to hear what your thoughts are. Today's episode is going to dive into the Marine Corps. Recently, I came across an article from the taskandpurpose.com. Marine Corps reveals why 75% of Marines get out after a single enlistment. This goes on to talk about how General David H. Berger of the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps Commandant, uh, his new talent management plan it's ruffled a couple feathers. Uh, so that is what we're going to discuss today. We're going to be joined by two Marines, Brad Washabaugh and Todd Kemper. I'll let them introduce themselves and their uh, their respective services. Um, they've had more than, I think, 40 years of experience between them. And also Scuttlebutt co-host Ryan All, who's an Army veteran and current Army reservist, will be joining us to, to dive into this talent management plan and figure out why it's been ruffling some feathers, why it's shifting the paradigm of what the Marine Corps is. Uh, If you don't know anything about the Marine Corps, this is a good episode for you. If you're interested in joining the Marine Corps, uh, this is also a good episode because the Marine Corps might be changing a bit from what you know it to be. Uh, But is it changing for the better? I think so. But we're going to dive into all of that and more. Thank you so much for joining us. So joining us today is going to be Ryan All, Todd Kemper, and Brad Washabaugh. Ryan All, for our normal scuttlebutt uh, audience, uh, may know you, uh, but welcome back for season five of the Scuttlebutt. I, I wonder if you could go ahead and introduce yourself for uh, the people who may not know you. Hi, everyone. My name is Ryan All. I'm an Army veteran. I deployed to Iraq twice as an infantry soldier, and I uh, then served as a uh, commissioned officer for a few years in the reserve component. And uh, I'm coming up on 20 years and retiring here pretty soon. So thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for having me back. And I uh, look forward to the discussion today. How long do you have? You count down the days? February is 20 years. And however long that process takes to get out will be unknown to me. I don't know. 
that's exciting. We're going to have to have a celebration for you here on the scuttlebutt. Um, also joining us for the uh, uh, Marine Talent Management Plan discussion is Marine veteran Todd Kemper. Todd, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, sure I can. I appreciate being here. Um, I'm a 30-year veteran of the United States Marine Corps. I retired as a colonel. I was commissioned in 1984 and retired in 2014. Um, my background is primarily in fighter aviation and as a backseater in F-4s, reconnaissance F-4s and F-18s. I commanded an F-18 squad in a Marine Aviation Training Support Group. I'm a graduate of the Air Command and Staff College, the Air War College, the Joint Forces Staff College. Um, and my combat tours are Desert Shield, Desert Storm over Bosnia. And then I spent a year as the DCOM Ops for Kandahar Airfield, where I was a senior airfield authority um, for NATO's largest airfield. And then I retired uh, out of the Pentagon as the executive assistant for the deputy commandant of aviation. Fantastic. So you're the perfect person to speak to the Marine Corps for our young audience who might be looking into the Marine Corps as a, as a career option. Uh, thank you, Todd, for joining us. And you also touched uh, on uh, an interest of Ryan and I's that we are pretty much obsessed with fighter pilots. Um, <laughs> we've had a couple here on the scuttlebutt, and we just we just love talking to them about that whole that whole field. It's incredible. Uh, and also joining us uh, today is Brad Washabaugh, not only a first time guest here on the scuttlebutt, but also a board member of the Veterans Breakfast Club, who you've heard me speak of before. Brad, pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I'm a 29 year veteran of the Marine Corps. I was an infantry officer came in in 1976 and retired in 2005. I um, have had tours in uh, Beirut and in 1983, I was in Desert Storm and also the attack of the Pentagon. I've had uh, numerous tours in the Marine Corps to include two in manpower where I served on recruiting duty in um, Albany, New York. And I, I was also at headquarters responsible for training officers enlisted coming into the recruiting force. and. Uh, Todd and I go back. He saved my butt many times, but specifically during Desert Storm, he was a forward air controller and his heroic actions there earned him a bronze star for saving uh, two Marines. And it's a pleasure to be here this morning. It's wonderful. And as I said in the intro, we're going to be talking about the new Marine Corps talent management plan that has been presented by General Commandant uh, General David Berger. Um, Brad, we sort of chatted about this before we started recording. If you could talk to us about what the talent management plan is uh, and why we're going to talk about potentially the, the controversy surrounding it today. Well, it's a bold plan and it's a plan that's uh, needed for the Marine Corps. It's been, they say, 70 years now since we really had a major shift in our manpower uh, policy and procedures, how we bring Marines into our force. And uh, General Berger is a visionary. He is uh, aligning our new force development with our manpower plans, uh, with our structure, trying to bring all the pieces together to get us ready to fight a near peer adversary in China. Uh, we are not uh, structuring and developing our force in General Berger's words to fight the last war, which has been a mistake made throughout history, where we look backwards and not forward. And he's looking forward to see how we can bring the best Marines in to do the job that needs to get done. It's going to be a more technological uh, battle um, uh, done with um, non-traditional means using technology, drones, uh, dispersed forces that all place a emphasis on the quality and the type of uh, Marine that we have uh, on the battlefield. And this is the idea of shifting from a sort of counter terrorism counterinsurgency force 
to a more, like you said, like near peer, uh, near peer enemy. Yes, and uh, you know, the uh, Marine Corps has been focused on uh, air, land, and sea. And as Todd pointed out in our previous discussion, we've got a couple new domains uh, coming in, in uh, space and information. These two domains really require us to take a, uh, perhaps a different look at how we conduct ourselves on the battlefield. So the idea is, is kind of to create a more mature force. And the article went on to say that for the past 36 years, the Marine Corps has discharged roughly 75% of first-term Marines each year and then recruited about 36,000 new Marines to replace them. So the idea of this plan is really a, a business shift in a way uh, from the idea of recruit and replace uh, to an invest and retain model. Um, and, and that is where I think the, the, the ruffled feathers, I use air quotes for our audio listeners to, that comes in. It's, like, it's sort of like, well, the Marine Corps is pretty established in what it, it, it does and what it likes. So why would this ruffle the feathers? Todd, I, I want to throw that to you. Well, um, because there's an ethos that every Marine's a rifleman. So if you are trying to solve a problem, when you look at the two new domains of how do you um, screen and recruit or individuals with the skill sets that are going to uh, allow us to operate within the space and the cyber domains, then perhaps where you find that uh, demographic of individuals is not right out of high school. Maybe it's a much older individual and where do you find that individual? Or it's an individual that came into the Marine Corps and then left the Marine Corps and went into the IT world and then matured for seven or eight or 10 years and then decides they want to come back into uh, and serve their country. Um, and so it's, it's that point that there's a potentiality that the most qualified individuals um, have never been Marines and we want to bring them in um, at a higher level of the Marine Corps without them having to go through um, boot camp or um, officer's candidate school. And so that's where some of the noise that's coming up within the social media world is coming in. <clears throat> and what it requires is a uh, avid discussion um, of what is in the action plan itself and really an understanding of why is the commandant, what problem is the commandant trying to solve? And as you do the critical thinking through that discussion, um, then you'll start to hit on a number of points um, that are created in the action plan. Yeah. Speaking of the, Today, go ahead, go ahead, Ryan. I just had uh, like one more like background question, right? What Brad was talking about was like fighting the, the war of the future, not the war of the past. And I think just for the listeners, right? When you think about typically, you know, Marines, a lot of the thoughts we think about is like the World War II Marines, the island hopping that went through the Pacific. Um, but in the last 20 years of warfare, that hasn't really been the case. Uh, the, the Marines have been fighting on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, a lot like normal infantry squads. So when we when we see this this vision, what do you do you think that it then turns back into that, you know, island hopping notion where, you know, uh, in the article talk about decentralized command and moving out there? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I think uh, one of the first things to remember is we're not uh, looking to lose our amphibious capabilities. Uh, that is uh, a core capability of the Marine Corps. And when you took a, take a look at the globe, you can see that the ocean has a great deal of uh, importance and also strategic value 
and uh, and how we position forces and how we engage potential enemies. So that ability to go from uh, ship to shore is going to remain. But I think the key element right now is the, these new missiles that come in that really place us further out from the coastline that require a different strategy and tactics to combat that, uh, that uh, envelope of lethality by these missiles that our adversary may have. Yeah, thank you. Speaking to the noise that that Todd brought up about what's been in social media, and just also the idea of just me, you know, I'm not a veteran and a civilian and trying to sort of understand this 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 paradigm shift here. Um, what mainly is the noise that we're hearing, and is it from veterans, uh, Marine Corps veterans? Is it from civilians? And a sort of a second part to that question is is why should I, as a civilian, be interested in this change? and or maybe teenagers that are looking into the Marine Corps, like why, what should we be digging into this plan deeper to really understand? Well, I think one of the first things is that one element that people react to is these lateral entries into the Marine Corps. And, you know, we, um, we the Marines need uh, applicants to fill these very technical fields as Todd mentioned. So this is not uh, where you bring somebody in from the street and make them a gunnery sergeant and put them in charge of a platoon or, or bring an officer in and put them in a leadership position uh, because that just, won't, that, that just won't work. But there are a few MOSs that are critical that are of a technical nature that we could entertain a lateral move if the individual meets those qualifications. So I think that one snippet is what people react to, but the reading the plan in its entirety, I think where you see where all the pieces come together. And the Marine Corps has done this in the past where they bring Marines in in a very limited way for the president's own band, for example. Those uh, musicians that come in do not go through boot camp. That's just an example of a very highly specialized force where the Marine Corps has done that uh, previously. But it's not just the entry level. The Marine Corps is looking at once we get a Marine in, how do we take better care of that Marine's career and put the right person in the right job? So there's a lot of matching that's going to go on before. And I think the analogy of putting a round peg in a square in a square hole sometimes applies it went on the old model of 36,000 marines in we need to fill these spaces and this is where you're going to go and the fit has not always been exact so identifying right up front somebody's ability somebody's skills and matching it with the marine corps needs and then keeping them in the marine corps as todd said to retain them longer by uh, looking at how uh, assignments can disrupt families and how homesteading can be an advantage staying one place longer and giving those incentives that keep a family and a Marine in the Marine Corps together for, for a longer period of time to retain that talent. Why did the Marine Corps have a recruit and replace mentality for so long and how did that develop? Well, I think it really goes back to the nature of our nature of our mission and the youth of our uh, organization, 36,000 Marines would come in a, a year and uh, they would go uh, into these entry level jobs. And if they wanted to stay, if they had the uh, qualifications and ability, they stayed. But again, it's a uh, high deployment, high op tempo, and you're bringing somebody in 18, 19 years old that may not be certain about their future. Uh, mm -hmm. This may be just a one step. And that's a good step for, for America and for these individuals that come in and enter the service, do their, do their service and go back into our society, you know, a better, a better individual, I feel. But given that, 
uh, we do have skills, we do have uh, responsibilities that we want to fill for the long term and reduce this uh, high turnover of personnel to get a more mature first force. And there, as sorry, real quick, a follow up question. Uh, sorry, Ryan is is as a, re a previous recruiter, prior recruiter, did you ever see a problem in, in hitting those numbers of 36,000 a year? I read that it wasn't too difficult for the Marines to, to recruit. Well, it, it a lot depends on uh, where you are geographically. Uh, mm -hmm. The Marine Corps gets very specific in, um, in quotas and uh, not only enlistments, but shipments, and it may be of different categories. So uh, overall, we've made the numbers, but it's a very difficult uh, duty assignment for the individual recruiter. Mm -hmm. There's no other place in the military, I think, where you have a mission day, uh, month in and month out that you can either succeed or fail and it's all very visible. And that creates a lot of pressure on the recruiter and a lot of pressure to, to fulfill that mission. So it is a tough duty in the Marine Corps, but overall the Marine Corps has made its numbers uh, for what we wanted. And now with this new uh, plan, our new strategy and our new force development, it's gonna shift a, a more mature force, a more highly skilled force in some technical areas. And I think a better force uh, for America and for the Marine Corps. Let's, let's also not forget that the Marines have the coolest uniforms, like the absolute <laughs> coolest uniforms and some of the coolest commercials, right? I remember being a kid and seeing the one where you like, he slays the dragon, right? I mean, like I wanted to be a Marine and I was, I was ready to be a Marine up until I was on a Navy boat and we're like, I don't like being on a boat. And, you know, I was like 16. I didn't realize that Marines were on boats all the time. And I was like, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. I'll join the army instead. But, um, uh, I, I did have a question, and this is um, this is a term, uh, uh, and this kind of rolls into what we're talking about here. But can you describe like how the you know the uh, the term terminal lance like fits into to this narrative, and what that means for maybe like um, you know the the average Joe who might hear it? You want me to take that one, Brad? Yeah, go ahead, Todd. So obviously, <clears throat> like all of the services. Um, we have a rank structure, and within that rank structure, um, you compete against your peers every day because the whole system across the Department of Defense has been built on up or out. So there's a performance evaluation system within each one of the services. So the term that you use, terminal lance, is based upon our rank of lance corporal, which is an E3. Um, and so within that group of individuals as they're maturing on their first enlistment, which is their contract, um, <clears throat> is kind of where they determine whether they think that they're going to look to try to go beyond their first enlistment. And part of that calculus in that discussion is one, are they still as gung-ho on the Marine Corps as they were as a pulley or as a recruited basic training now that they've experienced the fleet marine force um, and or whether or not they are competitive based upon their proficiency and conduct marks to be promoted to nco and so within that whole dynamic you get individuals that have decided that they are not going to try to make corporal and therefore in their own minds have become a terminal lance corporal. And therefore that gives them the freedom to 
in some cases, be more vocal of their opinions because they are no longer trying to be <clears throat> um, competitive to become an NCO. So as a commander, sometimes it is very important to get a group of folks that consider themselves, air quotes, terminal lance corporals, and listen to what they're saying, um, which goes all the way back to the old adage of, you know, Napoleon asking the corporal, what do you think of this idea? And then getting the true ground boots level perspective of what a big either operational and strategic level decision is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a great explanation. And I also want to point something out for, for our listeners, what Todd was just describing, right? This very competitive up and out, um, you know, uh, environment that the Marine Corps lives in. The Marine Corps is one of the you know, smallest forces. It's extremely competitive to stay in, um, which is not, it, that is not the case in most of the other, in most of the other branches, right? The Army, Navy, Air Force, most of the time, if you want to stay in, you can, um, especially in the Army. The Army's so big. Uh, the Marine Corps being smaller and more competitive, uh, to see uh, two gentlemen like yourselves who have been in for 30 plus years, that is um, something that's due a, a whole lot of respect. Uh, because to, to do that, you have to continually compete and be better than everyone else in the Marine Corps because there's only so many pieces. So uh, just for our listeners, you know, when you see a, a Marine gunny or a, a Marine, you know, lieutenant colonel or colonel or general, like these guys have, these guys know their stuff. These guys and gals know their stuff. And so I just wanted to point that out for the listeners that uh, when you see a very high ranking Marine, um, they, they have uh, exemplified and uh, and went above and beyond many expectations for many years. So um, just as a as a education for our listeners about the different sort of idiosyncrasies of the branches, I thought that might be helpful to point out. And what I found well, interesting, go ahead, go ahead. Just, just as a, a point of reference for our listeners. So currently the Marine Corps end strength, the total number of personnel that are within the United States Marine Corps, um, and these are numbers that I pulled off the internet this morning, um, about 181,200. Um, and as we go forward within the appropriations and budding cycle, um, because again, you have to have the appropriate amount of funding to pay for all of those human beings that actually reside within the Marine Corps, the Commandant uh, right now is looking to draw down in some numbers. So the proposal uh, for 2022 is 178,500. Um, and so obviously we, we are the smallest of the services um, but it's still, and particularly then when you take that end strength and then you look at the, um, importance of recruiting command and their ability to bring in, and then us release roughly 36,000 Marines every fiscal year, the amount of energy and resources that it takes as a service to do that. Yes, and there is a cost for doing that too. And that's one of the things that this plan, some of the critics say, well, it's going to cost too much. It's going to be not affordable by the Marine Corps and you may have to downsize to afford it because the budgets are set and you have to meet that budget line. But uh, what General Berger is looking at is offsets. You know, if you recruit fewer uh, Marines, less than 36,000 of the right uh, MOS or talent, they will be retain longer, so the turnover will be less. So there's a lot of uh, calc proposed estimates about how to do cost savings with this new concept of uh, force structure. What were the positives of having a younger, uh, less experienced Marine Corps? 
Well, really, um, for our mission and our op tempo, it really fit nicely to that young individual that was ready to take on the world and take on all challenges and step on this very fast moving uh, machine that uh, trained, equipped, and moved out smartly. And, uh, you know, that fit our model pretty well. And it's not to say the Marine Corps isn't uh, sophisticated in a number of ways technologically, but it, 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 it worked for what we needed. But, you know, we're looking at a shift here and this is not a wholesale change, but this is a, this is some change on the margins that, uh, that will affect the Marine Corps and our, and our ability to conduct our war fighting philosophy, which is maneuver warfare. We, this is, maneuver warfare is not new. That's where you put the initiative on the smaller unit and uh, decision-making. And that's been around uh, for, for many years, mm -hmm. but it's the weapon system. It's the technology that we use to fight now that's changing the needs of the Marine Corps. And uh, it, it, these changes are based upon scientific study where physical fitness is, is, is higher mid twenties or so. And your maturity is better uh, mid-20s or so compared to the 18-year-old, your ability to make decisions. So these things are well thought out and they match really our warfighting philosophy of maneuver warfare. And they fine tune it, they fine tune it to the needs of our future war. And this is where I uh, applaud the Marine Corps and General Berger for thinking through this and tying all the pieces together in a holistic way to look to how we need to be in the future. And an infantry battalion can't really go through a, a, a size and proficiency drop every 18 months while you're trying to bring in new people, train them up to speed on this more advanced technology. Um, for somebody who might be looking into the Marine Corps, I know that both of you have, I've talked with both of you about uh, how your family, how you were trying to incorporate your family into what the Marine Corps needed from you. Is there a shift in the plan for understanding a, mar a Marine might want a, a family eventually? Because the famous quote was right, like if you right. if if you want if we wanted you to have a wife, we would have issued you one. Issued you one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, like I said earlier, the uh, the Marine Corps realizes that the family is key to retention and to the Marines' outlook on their future. So, with this ability to stay in one place longer, uh, you know, every Marine usually gets orders three years, three or four years to move. I can cite an example in, in my case where my wife was uh, eight, eight months pregnant. I was down in Camp Lejeune and uh, we had orders to Washington, D.C. And I called my assignments. Uh, they call it a monitor in the Marine Corps. And he said, well, you've got uh, two options. I'll give you some options, Brad. You can uh, come to D.C. as your order state or you can get out of the Marine Corps. <laughs> you know, which one is it? So it was pack up the house uh, with my eight month uh, uh, pregnant wife and go up to Washington DC and dive into a new job in the Beltway and find a hospital for my wife and the birth of my son. And that takes a toll. And then you add deployments on that frequent moves. And some of that is, uh, is not necessary with a proper, with a more refined personnel management system and assignment policy and use of data and, and better analytical tools and decision-making tools, we can, do, we can do better than that. And when you do better than that, you, re, you result in a, in a better force, uh, more retention, uh, Marines and families that are uh, in better shape, better welfare, and able to handle the demands of military life, which is, are not easy. <laughs> I don't wanna 
to say that by any, by any means military life for families is easier is easy, but it can be made better. You know, it can be made better. And it's time that we put our attention towards that. Todd, can you speak a bit to how your family has, has worked with you over the course of your, your career? Well, I absolutely can. Um, but before I would do that, I would also try to go back and give a little bit of a historical perspective. So as we as a nation have looked how we're going to build our military forces, we have transitioned back and forth over history of uh, being a volunteer force and then uh, selective service force and then now back to currently an all volunteer force. And within that construct, not only statutorily, but also service-wise, there have been different requirements levied against who could come into the services at what age, whether they could come in married or not. Uh, and in the Marine Corps, um, it used to be that uh, you had to be at a certain rank and a certain age in order for the Marine Corps to allow you to go get married because of where the bases were, where housing was available, there was not enough married housing and those kinds of things. Um, the pay structure was not built on that. Um, and of course, as we now completely transitioned um, post Vietnam into an all volunteer force, one of the things that the Marine Corps had to take a look at is that in order to keep and, in, and be able to bring in this best and brightest, um, we've had to have a greater focus on the family. Um, in my particular case, um, because the Marine Corps is a deploying service compared to say the Navy, the Army and the Air Force, which have more overseas bases where you are either gonna be assigned uh, an accompanied tour where you can take your family or an unaccompanied tour, the Marine Corps typically will take a US continental based force and then deploy them either on shipping or not on shipping for a basis of six months or longer and then come back. And so one of the very interesting things is the lessons learned from the United States Army when we were doing sustained operations ashore in Iraq and Afghanistan for 17 plus years, where they had to then go to an expeditionary model where they had to do deployments and the impacts of being able to take the service member out of the family unit and have them be gone for six months, 12 months, 18 months, um, and then come back, and all the challenges that go with that. Um, and so across uh, my career, um, lots of deployments, lots of stress, um, and even with the advances in technology, you know, FaceTime and Zoom calls and other things, so you're more connected, um, it's still very, very difficult to be separated. Mm -hmm. And that's what, as a factor, one of the things that drives people away from um, their first or second enlistment. That's a, yeah, that's really well put, Todd. Um, I had one, one question for you guys. Like, so um, in your notes, Brad, you talk about like the career flexibility, some of these things in the talent management plan, things like uh, uh, job matching systems, uh, career intermission programs, um, parental leave for, 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 you know, new parents. Um, these all like sound great. Okay. But like as two senior officers thinking big picture, like what are the obstacles that you see with implementing that, right? With what we've already discussed, Marine Corps being a small force, you know, sometimes two or three people stepping out of a unit, you know, could severely impact the readiness of that unit. Right. So 
in an, in an infantry, you know, I, I came up in the infantry, in an infantry platoon, you lose three infantry guys. You're like, okay, whatever, I'm down a fire team, right? But you're, say you're in an aviation maintenance unit and both of your, you know, radar repair guys have to go out. One go, one's taking a career in a mission, the other guy's taking a, taking a parental leave. And now you're like, I have no more radar repair guys, right? Like that makes my unit essentially combat ineffective. So like big picture wise, how do we, how, how do you think that the, the Marine Corps can implement something like this with being on a, on a smaller scale, scale where everyone is, you know, more important? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it, it's really uh, grounded in, in reality of uh, a smaller force in numbers. But I think what the Marine Corps really needs and is going to go to is better management tools that can identify these cases. They, they do add up over time, whether it's a one here and a two here out of this unit and that unit. But I don't think our tools were really geared towards flexibility like we want to move to now. And whether it's uh, databases, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's making intentions known earlier and adapting to the needs of, of uh, the individual and the Marine Corps, I think really it's a good point. And the proof will be the proof will be in the pudding. But to make this thing work, uh, the Marine Corps has got to put its resources to backing up what these uh, these uh, tenets of the plan are. So I think it'll be a challenge, but I think the Marine Corps will rise up to that because the, it, it'll be demanded to make it work. I mean, it's the real bedrock of the foundation of allowing these Marines the flexibility and also getting through our retention, whether they're going to stick around. So, but it, it will be a challenge. Yeah. Todd, do you have any, any thoughts or? I do, Ryan. So really what you're trying to get at is you know, these things that are in the action plan. Um, and so like anything else, that's the direction we're headed right now. Each one of those individual items will um, be assessed and those that um, can overcome the barriers and show success will be inculcated into the Marine Corps, into the, into the new talent management plan. And those that uh, show promise will probably continue to go on. And the, those that are just too hard to overcome or there are second and third order effects um, may get um, set aside. Um, and, and then we come up with bigger and better ideas. Um, again, one of the things that is important to understand about the plan is that it's a plan of action. So there are a number of incremental approaches that have already started uh, within the plan. Um, and the full implementation the Commandant hopes no later than 2025 um, to, to build all these processes within the plan and be able to assess them and decide how to move forward. So there is some bit of flexibility within the plan. Well, absolutely. It's, it's like all plans, it's in action um, and will be modified or, you know, to put in a different set of terms. Um, when you're executing a military plan, you're always going to have branches and sequels. Um, what we don't have in front of us is the branches and sequels. We just have the actual plan as it's written right now. You, Todd, you and I talked a bit uh, prior to recording about how the Commandant is a, uh, a disruptive innovator. And I, I, I wondered if you could chat a bit more about sort of that title that you've given him. It's like, and that's what the Marine Corps might need. So... Absolutely. So every commandant comes in with a vision about how across his competency, he is going to shape the Marine Corps. And so one of the things that always drives that is what's going on in the operational and strategic environment. 
So the commandant came out with his 2030 operational design and now the talent management program or plan uh, is an offshoot out of his 2030 operational design. So within a lot of leadership, you can really take two forks in the road. One is to become a disruptive innovator, to change a system and completely turn it on its head uh, and see where that's gonna take. And we would probably try to categorize that with the cliche as out of the box thinking. Mm -hmm. Or you can be the continuous process improver where you take things that are already working, analyze the daylights out of them, perhaps even apply some of the greatest or, or the new business management tools like Lean and Six Sigma processes to improve that system. What is a Lean um, and Six Sigma process? So it's a, it's a business management term where okay. basically you go into any system and you're going to look towards finding those barriers that are holding you back from being able to achieve the objectives as you have them outlined. Mm -hmm. And it's in that understanding of the barriers and then coming up with strategies to break down those barriers then allow success to happen. I equate that to trying to change my daughter's diaper. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much you can do with a process and eventually it just ends up stinking, I guess. So. Yes, right. <laughs> Um, did, do you find that in your careers, Brad and Todd, um, that you had opportunities to be a disruptive innovator? I'll take that one on first. My intellect doesn't tend to drive me towards being a disruptive innovator. I'm not the big idea kind of guy, but I uh, lean towards more towards being a continuous process improver. Um, and part of that comes with uh, being a weapon school instructor um, and being able to go back and look at standards and deciding whether we have the right standards and then how do we change training processes to build um, the standard better and then how do we get more people to be able to achieve that standard, basically lifting all boats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've seen officers and NCOs, staff NCOs, I mean, you can tell what type of leader, what type of thinker they are. Uh, fairly quickly, you know, they can come in and uh, very creatively come up with an idea. Um, and, it, and it looks good, it sounds good, and it really sets the foundation. But then you need people to really build on that foundation, because that, all you have is a blueprint. Mm -hmm. And I think our leadership has a mixture of those. But I would think these disruptive uh, innovators are, are fewer and far between, between the others that can come in and build on a foundation because both of them are needed to implement change and it's it's building a team that is greater than the sum of its parts and uh and general Berger would be the first one to admit he can't do this by himself uh, he can set the idea he can plant the seed but it's going to take leaders of all types to get this management plan to get this direction from the marine corps headed in the right direction and sustained in that direction so and that's why the benefit of coming out with a plan and the communication of it and the discussion of it like we're doing right now is so healthy for an organization uh, and setting action plans. So um, I'm, not a, I'm not a creative disruptor. I'm more of the one that sees the foundation and figures out how to build off of something like that to make it uh, come true and, and, and make it as best as it can. Uh, but 
it's it's really uh, exciting to see new ideas come in. And the Marine Corps has been around for 246 years, not by keeping what we've done in the past, but building off of something and using these these ideas that come to us by these innovative thinkers and seeing the merit of it and pressing forward with it and adapting and changing and not being welded to a plan just because it's you know, uh, ink and paper right in front of us. You might've already answered my follow-up question is the idea that for a branch that's so steeped in tradition and using your term, like uh, the, the people that are there, the current Marines that are, uh, are building the foundation of the Marine Corps, is it their responsibility to adapt uh, um, to take on this this plan and turn it into action. And will they, do you expect there would be any pushback from any of the Marines? Would they take that and be like, ah, there's, we're steeped in tradition. Like how, how do they move forward with the new idea? Well, I think there will be some resistance as of any change, it's change management. And mm -hmm. I think what the, uh, the key to it is, is keeping the end state in mind. And that is to build a better war fighting force for our nation's needs. And you can debate tactics and techniques and stuff, but if you keep that vision of where the Marine Corps needs to go and has to go out there and welcome discussion and welcome feedback. And, uh, but at the same time you move forward, it's gonna take leaders that understand that and communicate with their, their fellow team members to, to, to get this in the right direction and make it successful. And, and it all still goes with the adage of, you know, those that have gone before. So whenever there's a new issue or a new problem to be solved, Marines can always look back on their history and say, this is not the first time in 226 years that the Marine Corps has come across a problem that it didn't know how to solve. And it's our legacy to sit down and do the hard work and use the intellect of the entire Marine Corps to try to solve this problem, which is kind of where this plan is for the Commandant. He's got a problem and he's putting it out to the entire Marine Corps. How do I solve this problem? And he's looking for um, darts and arrows and everything else uh, to come in to be part of that calculus in, in deciding, you know, where can he go and how can he solve the problem? With this, you know, desired end state of the force, you know, when we talk about that, um, if all of these things come true, but I was, we previously discussed, you know, they'll, they'll be going through a vetting process, but how do you believe this will like better prepare the Marine Corps to counter peer or near peer adversaries? Like if, if we meet these goals, how, how are, how is the Marine Corps better prepared? Well, what I would say is, is that Part of, and it, and it comes directly uh, from the plan itself, I'll give you two different quotes from the plan, and then I'll expand on that discussion as we go across the key element that, based upon when Brad and I were primarily serving, where the Marine Corps operated only in three domains, um, being land, sea, and air, and, and then we'll, we'll build on that conversation. So the first one I would say is that from the plan, the rapid rise in the importance of the cyber domain, for instance, has challenged us to find creative ways to quickly build critical skills at mid-career and senior levels. So I'll just hold for a second, let you think through that, and then follow up with this quote. We can no longer afford the cost in time measured in years and sometimes decades to train and educate all of our technical leaders. So obviously, uh, 
you guys are much younger. You're more adept with technology. You understand Moore's laws. Um, things are rapidly changing. And in the uh, first decade of the new century, the Department of Defense then expanded what were the three traditional domains and added two, cyber and space. And we have to be able to conduct all of our normal warfighting operations, both offensive and defensive within those domains. So where do we find the talent and the skill sets and the right people to be able to provide the subject matter expertise in space and cyber? Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, the star really uh, capable um, male or female athlete that's coming out of high school that's got a great intellect that can go into your standard MOSs? Um, or is it somewhere else? Where do you find the, the smartest folks uh, to be able to do offensive and defensive cyber? And that's the problem that the Commandant is asking the Marine Corps to try to solve because as you well know, as an infantry officer, um, if space operations affect your satellite system and you no longer have GPS, so you no longer can navigate, you can no longer potentially communicate, how do you conduct infantry operations as you've trained in that environment? So that's how complex the discussion gets. Yeah, and, and just for yeah, exactly what Todd was describing uh, as, a, as an add-on, you know, for our listeners, um, you know, we, we think about cyber is happening in cyberspace, but they have very real tactical and then, you know, follow-on strategic effects on a battlefield, just, just what Todd described, right? Like, if you can't communicate, that's, that's a serious problem, right? If you can't visualize, if you can't see what's going on, if you can't navigate, those are all very serious uh, tactical issues, which, you know, could then end up in tactical and then, you know, leading on to strategic defeat, right? So these are, uh, we, we think about cyber and cyberspace, but there are a lot of very practical applications in a military setting. Yeah, it's like that, that's like the, the first target is to disrupt communication, yeah. to, to confuse, confuse your enemy and, and suddenly you have an, an instant advantage. And even more than that, look at where the advances are, particularly in aviation fires, whether they be offensive weapons or um, air to ground weapon systems. But in order to increase our efficiency and our lethality, we have now designed what are quote unquote smart weapons. But how do those smart weapons operate? They're based upon a GPS guidance satellite system that is in the space domain that can not only be affected by the weapon systems coming out of the other domains, but can also be affected by the cyber domain because they may not have to physically attack the satellite in order to get the effect that they want. Probably for the, that's why it's so important for each one of the branches, including the new Space Force, to be able to communicate with each other uh, in a, a, a potential conflict, especially high level conflict where everybody's sort of involved. Very important point there, Sean, and, and that's why the Commandant carved out a new complete deputy commandant for information and within the deputy commandant for information then within the joint world we also have marine forces cyber command and marine forces space command um, as components within the joint world mm -hmm. because the marine corps each service now has to not only be able to um, protect and use its own networks 
within its service, but it also has to then fit into the joint warfighting world. This leads me up to a question about the idea of near peer potential conflict with, with China. You know, God forbid it ever happens. But General Berger came out and said something along the lines of, we would be at a disadvantage almost immediately technologically wise, but also it's an away game. And I was thinking, I was like, is it short-sighted to think this is an away game? Like China has, they, there's no way they would come past Hawaii. Like we're fine, we're safe, and we'd be fighting them over there. Well, I think when you look at the uh, threat to, to Taiwan and the South uh, China Sea area, I think strategically there are uh, concerns uh, over in that arena that, that far reach from the United States. And that's where the Marine Corps and amphibious forces, uh, but also fighting in a joint, uh, joint uh, battlefield are, are so important. And we would be naive to think that our near peer adversaries like China will not use these cyber, would not use these information warfare. Because, you know, you take a look at the proliferation of drones and unmanned vehicles, and our technology is almost, uh, first it's duplicated, and then it's built upon to something that's very threatening to our ability to conduct warfare. So, you know, change is going at a, at a speed that I think that's faster now than any other time in history, and you go back to, and Todd's a great historian, but you go back to World War I with the introduction of the machine gun, the airplane, the tank, and how the tactics and techniques uh, did not change initially, and you, you had those- Chemical warfare. Chemical warfare. You had a tremendous loss of life and stalemate because the force was not ready to fight in those new areas. And that's where we don't want to fight the last war. That's where we don't want to look backwards, but we have to look forward. And we have to stay current and we can't wait for the first blow. Uh, you know, United States is, is great for taking the first blow and standing up and, and uh, you know, regrouping and, and uh, you know, achieving victory historically. But the way the technology is going and the way the change is going, we can't afford to, to not step off smartly from that first from that first engagement. And to build on Brad's answer within the cyber domain, what constitutes an attack? What is an act of war within the cyber domain? Um, is that, does it have to be targeted at military forces or could it be at the civilian population? Um, how many cyber attacks happen against military networks every single day? Um, are we already operating under that umbrella? I mean, these like are probing. all questions that the commandant uh, and his MAR force and his deputy commandants are trying to solve as he's trying to build a force in readiness uh, to be ready to implement his operational design for 2030. Going back to the infantryman um, ground level idea, it, how does this change help out a Marine who decides to stay in for some time, but then eventually transitions out into the civilian world? Does it help them find a better job? Does it you know, um, further their career into the civilian world? I think that's uh, that's probably case by case uh, basis, but you know the Marine Corps is looking at uh, not only in the infantry but other MOSs creating a more a more diverse set of talents. In other words, in in the infantry, uh, a Marine will be um, proficient at more than one weapon system and involve other um, skills, uh, whether it's communications or this information warfare, handling technology, whether it's a local drone or uh, information gathering device. 
But I think, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a Marine or any service member that comes into the armed forces and, and goes through a tour or two and goes back into the civilian uh, workforce, um, I think you've got a, a great uh, individual, very well skilled, that uh, should be sought after and recognized for what they've contributed in the armed forces. And that's not only technology, but it's leadership, it's teamwork, it's all those attributes that are highly sought after by the civilian uh, workforce. And Ryan, Sean, what I would add to that is um, if we can take the talents as we recruit and screen individuals in, build upon those talents, give them a greater skill set, whether they decide to stay for four years or 30 years, that individual is going to be more talented when they come back out. And then once they get out into the civilian world and realize that perhaps um, at a later point in time, they would reconsider coming back in to the services with more skills. Um, ultimately, what the Commandant is trying to do is get to a more ready and capable force based upon what he sees as our near-peer adversary 2030 and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases, because they are less disgruntled because they've had a chance to, to build their talents, um, maybe we end up with a buzzword that, that Brad will be very familiar with, um, non-end of active service attrition, non-EAS attrition on that first enlistment. Um, and, and who are we returning back to the civilian world? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be, it's a very exciting time for the, for the nation and for the armed forces uh, and for the Marine Corps for what we're looking at as far as training and talent and family support and whatnot. I, I think it's a career that uh, is worth considering and uh, very exciting uh, to serve the, the country in these, in, in, in these new skills and development uh, and uh, policies and, and where we're going in the future. Very demanding, but I think very rewarding and exciting times too, because I can, <laughs> I can pick up a phone like Todd and be challenged by this smartphone, but we have people that can pick up this phone and see it as a mini computer and see all the possibilities from it and get very excited about being part of this technological challenge in all aspects of war fighting, whether it's the infantry battalion or an aviation unit or a support unit. I think it's here to stay and it's here to grow. And, and we're looking for people to come in to grow with it and, uh, you know, contribute, but also become, you know, what they want to be. And that's uh, somebody that's served the country and and develop themselves and um, have been enriched by the entire experience. I can think of no better point to end on because I'm sold on the new plan. It sounds pretty awesome to me um, about where the Marine Corps is going, where it needs to go um, and how it makes us a better, uh, better fighting force and ready for, uh, you know, future conflicts um, if and when they do happen. Um, Ryan, any, any final thoughts here? Yeah. Uh, I think that, um, what, what Brad and Todd brought up are, are all excellent points and that we need to be focused on the future, not necessarily the past. And there's going to be a stigma and there's going to be issues with, as, as in all, when all things change, right? There's going to be resistance to that change. Um, and me being an army veteran, I've, I've seen this, you know, happening in the army as well, like who we're recruiting, how we're recruiting. And a lot of, you know, you know, older soldiers, you know, have some, have some issues with that about what the, what the commercials say and all of those things. But, but we have some very, talented, capable people at the top uh, looking at some very complex problems, and they are looking to build our forces to support our nation in future conflicts in very 
long-term strategic ways. And I think that it's fantastic that, you know, that, that we are looking at uh, large, large changes to make sure that we are prepared for those challenges. Um, and, you know, Brad and Todd laid that out, you know, in a fantastic manner. So thank you guys for being here with us. Um, I, it was, I, I learned a lot. It was super interesting and I really appreciate you guys uh, educating us on it. Thank you. Thanks. My thanks for Todd once again coming coming aboard, Todd, and contributing. And you've got a lot of stories to tell. We'd be anxious to have you back on on the show here to tell some stories about the those high speed vehicles that you zoomed around in, and <laughs> stories from Afghanistan and, and running an airfield. And of course, your story with Third Battalion Seventh Marines is one that was told, but it's worth always retelling of personal sacrifice and heroism on the battlefield. So thank you enjoyed it. it it's a stimulating discussion it keeps me young again um you know i was up at five and reviewing notes and going back and running things down and making sure i had correct numbers and and, and ready to go so um and then eventually when we get to the point where we go tape off i've got some anecdotes just because there's two fighter aviation um enthusiasts on the net so well as a as a bit of bonus content here on the scuttlebutt we used to do a, a phrase of the week and usually it was some military term that I had never heard, but I heard you say this in a conversation prior, Todd, that I was like, what does that mean? And I'd heard it maybe before, but I, I wanted to get a definition. What are Goldwater nickels? So Goldwater nickels is a federal law that came out in 1976 that was the outgrowth of um, the operations uh, under Operation Eagle Claw um, when President Carter chose to try to go in and uh, get our hostages out of Iran. So we had special operations forces, Green Berets and special operators, Rangers and Navy SEALs, um, but we didn't have an overarching joint special operations command. And so Goldwater Nichols was Congress's answer to jointness. And it created a number of requirements for all the services of which one was the creation of um, the joint staff, the joint force, the unified command plan as we understand it today with um, joint war fighters. And then that left then the service chiefs as your title 10, recruit, organize, retain, or recruit, organize, train, and equip. Um, now one might say under the Commandant's new plan, recruit, retain, organize, train, and equip. Um, as you go forward. But one of the keys that came out of Goldwater Nichols was that in order that, that services would all give up their top 10% of their officer corps to go to serve in the joint war fighting billets across unified combatant commanders and functional commanders in the joint staff, which then created the Joint Forces Staff College um, and then the requirement for all the services within to have a command and staff college and then the service work colleges and then the two joint work colleges. So I guess the right question is going to be, what is Goldwater Nichols? And I was thinking actual gold water Nichols. I was like, <laughs> there's some term in there. There's like, I don't know, gold sifting Nichols. What, what, what is it? <laughs> I, <laughs> I was lost. Wrote, wrote the legislation. Goldwater and Nichols. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, it is completely... And so in, in the context of our discussion, when, when you see uh, individuals that have served before 1986 
and they come up and they have their opinions uh, in social media and in conversations, you, you kind of have to stop and go, what about Goldwater Nichols do you understand? Because they, is there still a belief out there that the commandant um, is going to be leading forces in a conflict? And the answer is no. He builds forces and then assigns um, or allocates those forces to the geographic combatant commanders, and they are the warfighters. You can tell that Todd has had assignments at the at the highest level at headquarters, Marine Corps. <laughs> you know, he worked for the general in charge of aviation. I had a, a, a couple tours at headquarters, Marine Corps. Also, it's not a it's not a very fun life, but uh, you do learn a lot, and mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, somewhat of a, a, a challenge. And if you can survive that tour, <laughs> then you can almost survive anything, let alone the commute and the and the daily challenges of uh, addressing some of these issues. Well, it, and it becomes when, you, when you're a professor of joint military operations at the Air War College for two years, when your students who are absolutely brilliant, smarter than you are, are gonna ask you questions about material, um, you have to have more than a thimble level of awareness. You have to have a knowledge level of discussion. Um, otherwise, they're gonna very quickly realize that you don't know what you're talking about and discard you. Good words. Uh, thank you guys so much for being a part of this episode for the, of the Scuttlebutt. To our audience, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Scuttlebutt, this time talking with uh, ministers of war. Um, we were going to bring on three pastors uh, who have all served, and uh, we're looking forward to that conversation in the new year. Uh, until then, we will have a Christmas special Christmas episode where I put out a call to Santa, and he's going to appear on the Scuttlebutt for our holiday Christmas episode next week and talk about uh, the traditions of Santa in the military. Uh, a fun episode uh, as we lead into the new year and we will see you all on a future episode. Thank you gentlemen so much for joining us for this discussion today. I wanna thank Millerstown Pick Apart for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. For Millerstown's hours, direction, inventory, and pricing, go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D.com. Thank you so much, Millerstown, and uh, we'll see you on the next Scuttlebutt.